Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It went viral. It was everywhere. I don't even remember being like there was a Muslim doing stand-up close to me if they weren't even Arab. I felt insulted. I was like, where is my audience? If not me, who? Why can't I do it? This is an empire. Stories of exceptional Arabs around the world and their journey to the top. I'm Dana Balut, and this is an empire. So I'm going to take you back in time just a little bit. Imagine it's 2020, it's February, and we're all starting to worry about this little thing called COVID-19. And you know how the rest of the story goes. But that's not where our episode starts, actually. And the Grammy goes to... It starts with Billie Eilish. She was huge all over the world back then, still is. And it felt like her song, Bad Guy, was everywhere. I know you've heard it. And that month, February 2020, her cover shoot for Vogue magazine's March issue was released. And of course, it went everywhere. In one photo titled Living Color, she's wearing this black and blue polka dot shirt and a patterned jacket with a blue straw rug in the background that might look familiar to Arab audiences, especially those in North Africa. And the frame, the frame of the picture has these slime green soup cans that say Andiwalu, which means I have nothing in Moroccan Darija. And I remember everyone sharing that picture and thinking, how on earth did Billie Eilish end up in a photo shoot like that? And the answer is this incredible British Moroccan photographer and artist, Hassan Hajjaj. It was the love of photography. It was just something that I sort of loved looking at magazines and pictures and stuff like that. And then took up the camera and started deciding to, to take pictures. Hassan Hajjaj is known as the Andy Warhol of Marrakesh. When he was 13, Hassan moved from Morocco to London, where he soon became a jack-of-all-trades. He worked as a club promoter. He ran his own clothing store. He gradually taught himself photography and started his own style that's... Honestly, hard to describe, and you just have to look at it. Colourful, bright, a mix of photography, pop culture and furniture design that shows how people, famous or foreign, are all essentially the same. A collection of work that wants to bring cultures together and which challenges stereotypes. Inspired by music, fashion, London's underground parties and the souks of Marrakesh, the work of today's guest has gained international recognition. Hassan has worked not only in photography, but also in film, fashion, furniture, performance and installation. 
He even has his own clothing line under the name Andy Walu Apparel, which kind of looks like a play on Andy Warhol apparel, except it's like Andy Walu Apparel. <laughs> He's shot some of the biggest stars, Billie Eilish, Cardi B, Madonna, and everyday people too. And that's important to him. His work expresses his own multicultural identity, but it's relatable. It's fun. It's beautiful. It's colorful. No matter where you come from, it's a joy to experience. Lots of my work is staged. It's playing on body language. It's playing on cinematic. It's playing on orientalism. It's playing on brands. All is a mix. Really, what I like to do is put the work out there and let the viewer decide whatever they want to think, negative or positive. If we can create some kind of thought or a debate, I'm sort of winning. Without a doubt, Hassan Hajjaj has built an incredible empire in the art world, and we're so lucky to have him on our show. He was in a studio in Marrakesh, and I was in LA. And I really enjoyed this chat, and I hope you do too. So Hassan, I kind of want to start at the very beginning about how, how you grew up. I know you grew up on a, one of the coastal towns in Morocco, and I wonder if you could begin with kind of telling me one of your earliest childhood memories, or at least uh, one that you think of when you think of your childhood. Well, so I was born in a place called Larache, which is north of uh, Morocco. Uh, it's a small fishing town. Um, it was known for fish. Um, my memory, I would say, probably being barefooted by the sea because um, I housed then uh, back to the sea, basically, playing football. Um, I suppose when you're a kid, you have that kind of freedom. If even there's problems around mm. you, you don't notice them. And why did your family decide to move to London? Purely economy. You know, my dad went there in the 60s. You know, my, my parents, they can't read and write. In the 60s, it was easy for foreign people to get contracts in the, in the UK to do the horrible jobs, you know, you know, like the sweepers, the bus drivers, the, the train workers. So it's what the British didn't want to do. So you had a lot of people coming from the Caribbean, late 50s, and then, you know, there was a small wave of Moroccan community coming there. So my dad, I think his friend got him a contract, um, and he went there, in, I think, in 1966, And at that time, they were their idea was to go to work, save money, come back, buy a piece of land, and do well for their family. That was the the idea. But all of them got stuck there and started to bring families there. And uh, in London, basically, the biggest communities from Larache, because each person was mainly men going there, would bring their cousin, friend. So one would bring ten, ten would be. You know, a hundred, a hundred would come a thousand, and it continued that way. So they lived in one room, shared the same food, you know, to save money. And then we sort of joined him in 1973. Yeah. And can you tell me more about what your parents did, your father and, and your mother? Uh, my dad worked as a cleaner. Um, I was very proud he worked in a place called Annabelle's, <laughs> but he was a cleaner. And my mum worked in um, a cleaner in the kitchen of a of a hotel. So basically, it was uh, horrible to say it was just horrible jobs. And did you feel that as a kid? Did you, did you feel kind of the troubles of your parents, and did that weigh on you? Yeah, I saw them struggling. I saw them doing, trying to do good for themselves and their kids and family. But you know, they sort of had to give up so much to do that. Um, you know, there's five, seven of us if I include mum and dad, Larhamum. So it was trying to feed them, trying to, you know, so it was really, and then trying to come back to Morocco in the summer. They reached their dream, which they bought a piece of land and built, you know, a house. Um, but yeah, it was a different struggle. And so you grew up in a quite a big family with um, 
many siblings. I, I wonder, I feel like every sibling always has a reputation in the family. What was, what was your reputation as a kid? Well, I was the oldest one. So I was the black sheep, the, you know, the breaker of the family in a sense to make it easy for my brothers and sisters. So I had to go through a lot, obviously culture, ways to kind of, uh, be moving as a teenager, trying to adjust there. Um, then you have this kind of uh, fight between yourself when you're outside, you're a Londoner, when you're inside at home, you're a Moroccan. It was tough. It was tough for my mum, uh, uh, because, you know, I was the first boy starting to go out and, you know, doing some stuff, uh, you know, as a teenager and stuff like that. But yeah, then it made it a little bit easy for my sisters and brothers. <laughs> It's true. I know it. I'm the youngest. I didn't struggle at all, actually, when it came to going out. <laughs> And along the way, Hassan, I wonder, growing up in the 70s and 80s of, of London, or at least being there, I wonder if you faced any kind of challenges by being Moroccan and, and an immigrant in London. Yeah, it was the 70s was very difficult being a foreigner for anybody, not just me. I mean, my first friends were mainly from the Caribbean because it felt more comfortable to be with these friends because we had the same journey. There was different culture. We shared something in common. So we had to stick together to protect each other in a sense, especially like 70s, because 70s was quite racist in your face, or I call it naive racism. Somebody might come and touch your hair because they've never seen your hair like that and, you know, stuff like that, or the colour of skin of somebody. The 80s in London was more like the beginning of the melting pot. That's where really London started to change. So, you know, you have to remember the history of, of London. You had 50s, 60s, the parents coming with, sometime with the babies that grew up in London. Then the first generation was born in the 60s, early 70s. So by the time the 80s, there was people there that felt they were part, they're Londoners because they're born there, grew up there. So they knew even if they're African or Chinese or Indian, this is their home. So for us, it was very difficult to get work. It was very difficult to go to a place to dance or listen to music. So all of a sudden, all my friends started to do things. I was running clubs, so I was putting music for what we want to listen to. My other friend was a chef. He was doing food. Another friend of mine was a fashion designer. One was a filmmaker. One was a cam. So then we started working together. You know, if I need a camera person, I'll call my friend. If uh, I'm doing a club and I need food, I'll call my, my friend. So that's when it's become that word, the melting pot in the 80s, is really because of this period of time. It was like, not Britain, I'm talking about London. Do you remember, Hassan, the first time that, that you thought, I guess that you experienced art or kind of decided to, to lean towards, towards art a little bit? I mean, it, was, it wasn't something planned. Um, it was like a, a long journey for me to call myself an artist. It was a long journey. I did so many different things in London, kind of creative, but I would never put my name onto it. Uh, I did shows, I used to do parties. I mean, I did lots. So that's creative on one side. And then I started, uh, I had a, a store, a shop that was doing streetwear in 1984 called Rap. And during this period of time, I started meeting lots of people that became friends. So I started assistant styling in uh, fashion, in catwalk shows and magazines. My friend was doing music videos. So I was doing location, uh, casting, food. So I was doing that. And then I was running the clubs. And then I started doing some art shows in my shop. So this was really a learning process. Meanwhile, I had the love of taking pictures. So I was taking pictures for myself, not, not to have a plan with it. 
one thing happened to another, I got introduced here and did a show and stuff like that. And I think when I did uh, my first show, I remember the, the gallerist was would introduce me to her client at dinner. This is has an artist, the artist, and I would be literally turn around to again, Alexander, I'm not an artist because I didn't feel I was an artist at that point because I needed to dig deep down to mm. see what I have inside me. And it literally took me two or three years to feel comfortable with the word artist. And the best time for me to use that name when I had to fill up the passport when it said occupation and it said artist that was when I felt uh, you know uh, uh, I've reached in that kind of way but it literally took me up to three years why why did it take you so long because you know uh, you have to remember I'm, I'm coming from a situation of somebody didn't study art you know I have lots of friends of mine that are artists so I saw them studying I saw them learning techniques the history and also getting prepared to, when they leave studying, they're going to become an artist. So they've already sort of built themselves to be this person. Uh, with me, I had to learn as I went along. And I felt ashamed to say to my friend who study, I'm an artist before him, mm. where he's been studying for five years or four years. But more than that, it was something to see if it was just a one-off thing, you know, it's just like, is it just a luck thing? You know, uh, is it something that happened that moment and nothing inside? I was supposed to earn that name, in a sense. So it was mm. really something to do with myself, you know, uh, to see if there was something r- real there or if there's something that's just a, a moment. And and in your household, how would how were your parents or your siblings like reacting to you being an artist? Far away, it's another world, you know. Um, just they don't own anything about art. I remember taking my mum, Lara Ahmed, to, to my show. <laughs> she walked in. She didn't even look at the pictures. She sat, had some tea. And said, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, she's win. And that was it. There was, and I, I liked it for that because it wasn't, you know, it's not, you know, you have to remember we're growing up in the sense having pictures on the wall is haram, you know, stuff like that. So, so there's that kind of double standard you, you have to think about. Uh, but really, it wasn't something um, for them to understand. It was a really a, a world far away from them. In the 90s, things start to happen, fashion, music, art, sports and stuff like that, where you could see you know, the result of this young, you know, the young generation are benefiting of some of that kind of journey. Mid-90s, that's when really, I suppose, I got possessed by just shooting lots uh, for, you know, for about seven years, not sharing the work, just really just shooting between London uh, and Morocco. Um, can you talk a little bit about the evolution of your photography? Um, I often feel like when I look at your photographs, it's it's very, in some ways, it's activism and there's messaging around capitalism and branding and you're, you're constantly saying something, whether it has to do with capitalism or colonialism. And, and I wonder if you could talk about the evolution and um, where you've landed kind of today. Well... I think that was probably the journey of what I was living, you know. So there was part of me being a Londoner and part of me being Moroccan. For example, the studio shoots I do, uh, my first experience with this was in Morocco when I was a kid, you know, where I dress up with my mum and my sisters in the 70s, like our best dress up and go to the local photographer studio and he would put the lights and the backdrop. He would have a picture taken and then you get a postcard size a few days later and he would send that to my dad in, in London because, you know, he wanted to have a family picture. So it had that impact. So when I decided to do this, I thought, well, anybody could really hang a cloth or something on the wall 
to take a picture, make it a studio, but what can you say with that? So I've really wanted to use my designs, colourful, and play around with the framing to keep that style of photography, but bring it to the new generation and make it contemporary. So that was the challenge I, I used and, and tell a story with it. So, you know, I had all these influences and that really came out of my work. You know, I grew up talking about capitalism when I had my streetwear. It wasn't even called streetwear, the, the, the shop. You know, we were selling counterfeit T-shirts, Chanel number no. 5, Gucci. This is like 1988. Or getting jean jacket and sewing, you know, like a, a brand on the, on the back or something like that. Because we was kids in the 80s, uh, we wanted to be part of that rich, accepted. And the brand, I suppose, presented this of like, you know, if you made it, you have the, you know, the nice cashmere jumper and, you know, Prada trousers and stuff like that. But at the same time, they didn't design stuff for us. So that was really stuff that happened in the 80s and that naturally came out in my work. So I was aware of this and I'll use this for the strength of my work to communicate to people like myself. Mm, it's beautiful. I, I've heard you say that your art is not for the intellectuals. Yes, I mean, I think I'm, I probably did say that. I want it to be for everybody because I was one of those people that would feel uncomfortable to go in the gallery. I would never have gone to a gallery by myself, uh, you know, when I was younger. I would feel uncomfortable. I'd feel unwanted to walk in for the doors. And even if I walked through, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't know how to stand in front of a piece of work. I would just feel very aware of myself. So, you know, my work, I want it to be accessible. Uh, I want the people that look at it could look like somebody they know a cousin or somebody they know from Brooklyn or, you know, South Africa or Brazil and stuff like that. So the idea was really to communicate another layer of people like myself using all the experiences growing up, all the racism, stuff like that. So it's really presenting and documenting at the same time. For the artists that are listening or the photographers that are listening, if you could talk about the process of whether you're photographing Billie Eilish or someone on Skid Row, like what is the process that happens in your mind? I'm coming from a very bright, colourful place. You know, we wear, and if you've been to Morocco, there's no scary, you can wear lime green jumper, you can wear any colour and it just sort of works, obviously, of, of, of the lighting here. And I remember in England, I still had bright, clothes and my friend just take, take, make fun of me, you know, like a bright green jumper, for example, and it's, you know, it's very dark there, so it just looks a bit odd. So I think when I'm taking these kind of pictures, especially in London, at that moment, I'm sort of dressing up the person and hanging up the backdrops. And when I put that person inside, you know, inside the set, let's say, at that moment, I'm inside it because all I'm looking at is that box of colour. So I call it escapism. It's probably me escaping from sometime maybe, you know, the problems of the world and stuff like that. The process, I mean, I'll come to Billy Ellis, for example. So I think, you know, my personal work, if you come to my studio, you're going to see probably now I'm reaching in thousands of different outfits and props and backdrops and stuff like that. And it's really, once I know who I'm shooting and I vibe with the person, he or she or they, then I'll start to work out the outfits to present. And then once I know the outfits, I will work out the backdrop that will go against the outfits. Once the picture is taken edited, then I will work out the frame and the, the products that go around the frame. So there's a few steps to, to have the finished work. Coming to Billie Eilish, that's something like Vogue approached me. They wanted me to do, uh, to do a cover for Vogue magazine shooting Billie Eilish. 
So when I get to that, to this situation, it's like a triangle. I've got to be happy, but more importantly, the artist I'm shooting has got to be happy. And then also the magazine who's employed me for this job, they've got to be happy. So it's trying to make that happiness of three ways, if that makes sense. So it's different, but at the same time, I would shoot in the same way. You know, I would still treat Billy Ellis like the same as my friend in the Medina or something like that. And then also get the opportunity to kind of get them to dress up in my stuff. It really took all the people I've taken pictures of to get the attention of these kind of celebrities. And the people that you usually take pictures of, is it a conscious decision of who you want to photograph and how much of them do you insert into your work? You know, I'll let it happen naturally. You know, as my work got popular, I'm getting asked now quite a lot. People, you know, getting DMs, you know, can you take a picture of me, this stuff? So I find it a bit funny. But really, the great thing is I have a whole list of people on the shoot. It's just not enough time. Uh, so it's to do with the vibing with the person. That's the first thing, you know, more importantly, because um, it's not just about shooting anybody. So it's about either meet in person or if I'm a fan. And also, you know, uh, like, you know, I've been very lucky in my journey to meet so many different types of people from all different parts, backgrounds. So it's nice for me to capture that because also it's showing my journey and documenting these types of people. So it could be a footballer, it could be a local person who's, you know, who's working in the Medina, it could be somebody in high fashion. So I love the kind of high and low uh, to play around with that. Oftentimes, when it comes to artists, a big conversation is finances and how you, you know, you go from being sometimes a struggling artist, which is, you know, the cliche of the struggling artist, to someone that actually photographing Cardi B or, or Billie Eilish. And I think for a lot of the artists listening, maybe you can talk a little bit about your, your journey with like money, really, because yeah of just being able to make more money or ask for more money or your relationship with money uh, first thing i would say because i sometimes i'll get asked some uh, some younger generation how did you how do you make it how do you become famous how do you make money they want to make money and become famous and i always say if you go in with that attitude it's the wrong attitude you know even if you make money and become famous it might be not the right path because you might you might start making the wrong decision along the way because you're trying to make it as far as money making there's thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of artists around the world surviving on, on the arts, but we only know maybe the kind of big ones that have big names like the superstars. And there's only a small percentage of those. So if you can get managed to survive on it, you're doing very well. And my journey was really, I had to do so many other things while I was taking pictures and investing myself, you know, by buying the fabric, making stuff having stuff ready, but also I had to take on other jobs. You know, I've been lucky where I can maybe design T-shirts and earn a bit of money of that. Uh, I've started to do commissions the last few years. That's that's really helped me up to kind of survive because because you might have a moment having a show and make decent money, but then you might not have anything for like six, seven, nine months, and you have to learn how to save that money to kind of um, to bridge it to the next gig, let's say. So I always call it, you have to be... A hustler. When I say a hustler, you have to hustle the art game. And to do that, you really have to be prepared not to do everything, but to kind of go off, invest in your art, but you might have to do some other work on the side. Um, so I've had to really do different stuff. And I'm happy if I can sell a t-shirt for 300 dirhams and I can sell a piece of work for 
10,000 um, dirhams. One is maybe is more profit and one, but for me, it's the same sweetness because you did it, you did it and you're, you're making it from that way. So it's, it's really about life of the journey that the art can take you on. You know, if you can make you travel, pay your rent, eat well, meet good people. For me, that's really the richness of, of you know, being an artist. So wrapping up a little bit, is there anything that you haven't done yet that you would uh, like to explore or something that you're looking forward to? Uh, No, really, just to be able to take time out and go in my archives, you know. I was just shoot a lot and I never go and look at it. Uh, So that's one of the ideas I would love to do. As far as work, I mean, I'll do so many different things. I'm experimenting with film. One day I'm designing, one day I'm shooting, some of day differs, which I've been really lucky. I think I always imagine if I was just like doing photography, 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 I might get bored, to be honest with you. I've had so much more than what I could have jumped for in a sense, you know. I've uh, never expected any of this stuff that's happened to me in a sense along the journey. So I always think it can't, it can't, can't get better than that. But I've been really lucky to be able to be still relevant. And, you know, I'm not taking that for granted because, you know, artists have a window, you know, uh, like everybody, you know, like everybody else. But really it'd be nice to kind of be, um, go under the radar for a minute to kind of just look at my work um, in, inshallah in a few years. Well, h- how can we, as, as people that are viewers of your art and fans of your work, how can we better support people like you or y- your art? Like, what do you also need from us as we get to enjoy your work? What, what do you need from us or what would you like from us? To answer your question, in a sense, what you're doing right now as a platform, this is important not just for me, for other artists, but I think also for the artists to look within their countries, within their, you know, don't have to look outside all the time. If anything, artists need more help to do with space, materials, education. Um, you know, if you look at, if you talk about Africa and, and the Arab region, there's so much talent in everything, in fashion, in music, in art. But we fall, we fall because we don't have sometimes the understanding from the older generation. We don't have enough spaces, uh, galleries. And if there are galleries that don't really, it's almost like the galleries are sort of not understanding the younger generation. It's almost like a record label. It needs to be broken. <laughs> yeah, um, so I think it really is to do with like, with the community, with, uh, with our own self to help each other. Thank you to Hassan Hajjaj for speaking to us on this episode. Please do yourself a favor and check out Hassan's Instagram page at Hassan Hajjaj underscore Larash, L-A-R-A-C-H-E. Make sure to also visit his public studio in Marrakesh if you're around and his store in London and keep an eye out for whenever his next pieces go viral. And they will. This episode was produced by Finbar Anderson and Ahmed Ashwood. It was edited by me, Dana Balutz, and Alex Atak, with research and fact-checking by Dina Sabri. Sound design by Yusuf Duwazu. 
A special thanks to Soul DXB for connecting us with Hassan as he hosted the 2022 edition of their festival. And if you'd like to watch this full uncut video interview with Hassan or any of our amazing guests from the season of Al Empire, just head to YouTube. We're doing that now. And search Al Empire or follow our socials for more at Kerning Cultures. We'll be back next week with a new episode. We hope you enjoyed this one. Take care. Be kind. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.